So hello, uh, my name is Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Ferdinand Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed today um, for actually audio only um, edition, but that's voice is just as interesting as anything else. Uh, joined in the shed today um, by Akiko Hart. Um, as people have listened or watched these in the conversations before know, I don't really want to introduce the person. I'm really interested in the person I'm in conversation with telling us about themselves in their own words. So Akiko, over to you. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Thanks so much for inviting me today, Alex. Um, so my name's Akiko, my pronouns are she, her, and I work as the chief exec of NSUN, which is the National Survivor User Network. So NSUN is a charity um, and an England-wide membership organisation for people who live with mental ill health, distress or trauma, as well as um, user-led groups. And thank you, thank you. That was, that was fantastically succinct. I was expecting you, <laughs> but no, that's brilliant. So that, so why I, well, there are multiple things I'd like to talk to you about, Akiko, but the, why I was really interested to have, have you in the, in the shed, as it were, and I should say we're recording this on the last day, uh, 21st of April 2021, when people are formally able to submit responses to the white paper proposing uh, reforms to the Mental Health Act. Um, the timing of it actually was a happy coincidence. But why I'm really interested in talking to you, Akiko, is, is thinking through how responses or how people respond to proposals in relation to mental health legislation. And I'm particularly interested in the perspective of someone, well, your perspective, in terms of thinking about this in relation to Ensign. And I, I'm not saying I want you to speak on behalf of Ensign, I should make that really clear. I just want to sort of get your perspective on thinking through how you respond to such a sort of series of things which have been advanced. So I hope that's not too broad a question, but, but and we, we can sort of break it down into chunks if we want, but if I could throw it over to you. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting and thorny one and one that we, I think, grapple with kind of continuously. So I think there's maybe kind of two parts to this. And one of them, I can talk you through like the process part of it and, you know, that the kind of the pros and cons of what we've done. Um, but then there's the heart of it, really, which is how does a user-led organization, or actually indeed, I think any membership organization. So I think some of this applies to professional membership bodies or industry bodies. How does a membership organization take an organizational perspective on something? And how, how, do, and how does that work in terms of the membership? And I, I really don't have the answer to any of these, but I can talk you through some of the challenges, I guess, as I see them. So in terms of process, um, you know, I have to say, first of all, that the I really, really understand that from, you know, the, the Department of Health perspective, um, you know, that there were constraints in terms of what the, the consultation could look like. Um, but the feedback we've had is that it's been really inaccessible. So there's a whole piece of work there around how do you give kind of context to this? How do you make this kind of accessible? And different organisations have done different things. But in terms of like trying to kind of get a sense of where our membership um, 
is on, on some of these questions. We, we've done various things. So we, we've held different webinars, some of them with the British Institute of Human Rights, um, one of them on our own. We've put out um, online surveys um, through our bulletin, on social media, had quite a few calls, lots of emails from people. So a bunch of things. And obviously because of COVID, all of this has been online. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore there's a bunch of people we haven't reached. But I think the reality of it is that even if it hadn't been for COVID, so if, if it hadn't been for COVID, we would also have done kind of some face-to-face -face kind of events, groups. But even with that, you miss people. And actually you maybe reach a different bunch of people if it's online only. Mm -hmm. So ideally you want both, but in order to do this properly, you need time and you need resources. Um, and I think you need imagination. And I think we've really struggled with this, you know? So I think we've got a sense of what some of our members think uh -huh. is representative. I don't know. So that, that's, that, that's the first thing. Um, in terms of the second thing about how do you get to a position? You know, so I, I'm actually really interested in membership organizations. Um, and I think it's, it's a really big question. So I think on the one extreme, you could have a situation where you consult with your membership on absolutely everything. So anything that you put out, any statement, any action, you're kind of like talking to them. And that's obviously not plausible, I don't think, for us at least. And I don't think it is for most membership organizations just because you have to be agile, you have to be nimble, stuff happens in real time. And again, you get to that point of where you can consult quickly and get some quick responses, but they're not going to be representative. You're just going to get the people who are kind of there in that moment responding. And at the other extreme, you could kind of completely ignore what your membership say and never consult with them and just go with your own views or the views of the people you know, you're closest to. And that would be unethical. So I think we're in that kind of like middle space of like mm -hmm. trying to figure things out. And I think some of that has to be iterative. So it can't just be, well, we ask the membership once and that's it. It's got to be a kind of a dialogue. But I think there's also something about perhaps the path to, of least resistance. So I think the path of least resistance for user-led organizations or membership bodies is to say, A, our members think lots of different things. Yes. And B, <laughs> you know, and B, um, our position is therefore some kind of fudge some kind of like middle ground, you know, amongst all these different views. And I think that is really unhelpful, though I get like, you know, why that's also really tempting. So for the first part of that, this idea that like people have different views, I think that's obviously really, really relevant to what we're talking about today. I think it's really important to lean into that, but in a thoughtful way. So not just say, well, there's lots of different views, here they are. Um, because I think part of our function, part of our role at Ensan is to challenge this idea that there's only one kind of service user voice or one service user block. It's to kind of talk about the plurality of voices, the complexities of things to kind of put forward knowledge, not just as individual knowledge, but as collective knowledges. So I think we trouble some of that. But I think also I've seen this weaponized. So I've seen providers or policymakers say, well, everyone always disagrees, you know, shrug, eye roll. And so I think we need to lean into this idea that there are many different perspectives, but they are deep and they are broad and to trouble that. But the second thing about this kind of fudge position, as tempting as it is, is I think, I think that's, that's the wrong call for an organization. I think you have to take a position, you have to take a leadership position, but how you get to that, I think, is really complex. So for example, 
when it comes to the mental health act, I can give two examples. So one of them is the thorny one around um, the Convention of Rights people with disabilities and um, a kind of rights-based approach. And my view, talking to members, you know, listening to them, um, you know, seeing their emails, their responses, is that there isn't a consensus amongst our membership, certainly, that um, we should be advocating for the abolition of the Mental Health Act, for mental health legislation. So it's a view, it's a strong one, but it's not, it's not the consensus view. Where there is consensus though, I think, is towards a rights-based approach. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting because how can you, should you disentangle those two things? How could, you know, how do you start kind of articulating a rights-based approach which draws on the CRPD, but isn't completely enmeshed with it? Um, and how, and, and I, I think that that's really interesting. And obviously that is a position because the white paper and the independent review deliberately didn't take that kind of rights-based approach. So that's kind of one position. The other one, perhaps it's less of a position, but perhaps one is, a, is an example of where we, we you know, some of our, our position has changed perhaps because of what our membership is saying to us is that we've heard a lot about discharge, about concerns about discharge, this idea that, well, this is all well and good, but you know, what the white paper seems to be leaning towards is getting kind of more people kind of off their books, you know, off the book, you know, outside of the act. And then there's nothing in this kind of so-called community. And so we, we, we've taken a position based on what our membership have said. And, and obviously these things don't happen in a vacuum. Like we consistently hear all of these things. So I, I don't know if that, that's helpful. I, Gosh, no, that's so, so thoughtful and so, I mean, unsurprisingly thoughtful, but so thought-provoking. There's so much in there. Um, I think, actually, do you mind if we pick up on, oh, well, multiple things, but let, can we take the very last thing you said first? And so this idea that, you know, this thing, these things just don't exist in a vacuum. And if you, you know, if and the terms of reference of the review are trying to get people off the mental health act you know that's kind of that's the job spec and it's how how you then grapple with well as it were that's all very well but and i just be can you amplify that a bit because i, I that that was very tantalizing to me in terms of how you were thinking and how you were grappling with that so i guess one of our kind of headline positions on the white paper, and I think this is kind of echoed by other organizations, is that there's actually not necessarily that much leg legislation in it. There's an awful lot of policy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the changes are contingent on funding yep. and um, other policy changes. And I think also the, the political will, so there's something really interesting about the political journey of the act and who actually owns it now and who really cares about it you know within government and therefore what will happen um, to it and all the other changes so i think that's some of the, the the wider context and you know something else perhaps is that i think this is the case everywhere in mental health but perhaps particularly salient in this area is that you'll i find myself i'm just speaking as me now i find myself I find it really challenging because you're constantly faced with people's assumptions about things which often aren't articulated. And I think 
And you can kind of see some of this within the white paper, I think, where one of the assumptions is that detaining people is not a good thing and we should detain fewer people. And, you know, and I, and I completely understand that. But what does that mean in reality for people who, you know, are subject to the act or, you know, who live in the shadow of the act? And I think the unintended consequence of that, of that can be quite quite huge. Um, Mark Brown, who's working with me on this, um, you know, he and I often talk about the many false binaries um, in, in mental health. And one of them is this kind of false binary between people saying, well, there should be more beds and other people saying, well, there should be fewer beds. Um, you know, and Mark says, well, maybe there should be enough beds. And kind of what does that look like if we kind of start framing it like that? And what if, you know, we're talking about enough beds and good beds. And, and I think that's what I'm getting at, I think, with the discharge thing, this idea that it seems some of, some of the, there, was, there seem to be some underlying assumptions there that aren't quite articulated. Um, and that could lead to people essentially not getting the, the, the support and care that they might need. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's uh, and I should say, this is very much speaking as me, not as any wearing review hat uh, uh, person, as it were. But I, I think one of the really interesting challenges that the review threw up all the way through for me was it was so partly because, well, really, actually, almost predominantly because of its terms of reference and also the political space, I think, within which this area operates. It's so firmly focused on negatives. So don't do, don't detain for longer than you have to. Don't, you know, find ways not to treat against people's will. All sorts of things which actually sound, and, and, and not just sound, I mean, there are very serious goods as to why that you don't want to do that. But it's, to me, there is, and I, and I should say, I know a lot of people on the review very strongly felt this as well, that unless you also have, and this just sits completely outside the Mental Health Act, positive duties or positive rights to things, then you are always just going to be, if you focus purely on the Mental Health Act, and that's the legislative vehicle, you are always going to just be circling around you know, what mechanism do we use to detain? When, you know, who do we detain? When do we detain? How do we stop detaining them? Without the kind of bigger picture stuff. And I just think it's how one, and I think one of the things, and in a way you, you touched on this, and I'd be really interested in your token, because it's your conversation, not me ranting at you. But one of the things I'd just be fascinated to hear you thinking about is, is the fact that this is, it's like the kind of canary in the mind, the Mental Health Act. So in other words, it picks up on so many other issues about socioeconomic problems or racial problems or other things. And it gets filtered through the prism of the mental health act. And then how do you get a kind of response which says, well, it's an awful lot more than this. How do you re-gear re everything else when it's just the only piece of legislation which is currently thinking about is this one in a in a world where that's what you do. I mean, people don't say, we're just going to reform absolutely everything across the piece with every single piece of legislation. And I just be, sorry, that's a much longer, it wasn't stopping a question and started being a comment. Apologies, Akiko, please, over to you. No, 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 I, I, I agree with that. And it's, um, can I just say, by the way, it's such an inelegant piece of legislation and it's, you know, it's really messy. And 
I, I think, you know, one of the, the kind of challenges as kind of like Ensign of kind of like being in this space is that people are talking about different things at the same time. So some, yeah. some people are literally just talking about the legislation, which is really, really specific and quite dry and actually very contained, you know. Mm -hmm. And then some people are having kind of macro conversations about rights. And then some people are talking about funding, about policy, about services, which operate out of like, you know, different systems. And, but at the same time, you know, you can't, these changes don't operate in a vacuum. They can't happen in a vacuum. So you've got to kind of pull all these different strands together, but, but yeah, I just think that, that yeah, so I, I'm kind of with you on how challenging this is and, and therefore how frustrating some of these conversations are and how risky some of them feel as well, because it feels really risky to say, well, we support this bit of, you know, of the act when it's so dependent on other bits outside of it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I suspect, but I, I don't want to draw you into difficult territory, I suspect it is particularly difficult if there are, aspects where you as it were your support is contingent on x y and z and then there's obviously always a concern and i'm not saying this is in this particular situation but in any of these things that concern that people will then say well you say x but then don't, don't necessarily say well actually your x was contingent on a b and c because it's just people always in all contexts and in a way you were sort of talking about this almost within your own formulation of things, there's this risk in cherry picking things which people say. And it's how yeah. you get that kind of, that nuance there. Yeah, and it's really tricky. And like, you know, and I would say as well, and I don't know if you've experienced this, when I was um, working kind of in and around the independent review, um, the first time around, so in 2018, I think there was a lot of energy around that, it felt, People, I don't know if people felt really motivated and angry and there was a lot of noise and a lot of debate and this time around with the white paper I haven't felt that so much and you know I'm I, and I don't know why that is it's maybe because you know we've kind of been in a pandemic for a year and like a lot of stuff has happened but also I wonder if there's general fatigue around it and if people feel like that was the battle in 2018 and now there's kind of not much point in engaging with it so I think that complicates things. Um, yeah, I'll give you an example, I guess, about um, about kind of an area which kind of feels all right in principle, but but kind of might not be. So around um, kind of advanced choice um, documents and nominated um, persons. So you know, both of which I think most people have been kind of broadly kind of happy with. I think I would argue that the advanced choice documents you know, don't go far enough and they should be legally binding as they would be um, for physical health, but that's a separate argument to, to this one. But all of that stuff kind of presupposes that people have been in services, if that makes sense. Yes. So, you know, so that, and also that those services have been reasonably helpful so that, you know, someone has kind of like told you about these things and kind of sat down with you and kind of talked you through it or, or, or you found out about it through your own research or through an advocate. And so they sound fine in principle if you know the advanced, doc, advanced choice documents are properly funded, for example, and respected, but actually they're, they're not really relevant for people who, access, who, who are detained for the first time. 
And, and this is a bit of a hole, right? Because everyone who's detained has a first time being detained. Yeah. And yeah, and so what do we do about that? Because it's clearly not as simple as saying, well, you know, all of those ideas are terrible, but, you know, and I think Neil Allen talks about this in terms of how one of the unintended consequences here might be a kind of two-tier system where people who are deemed to have capacity and people who've kind of experienced kind of like more support in the system might have a radically different experience kind of like under the act compared to people um, who don't. And yeah, so that that's something that's come up for us. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, sadly, we may not have the time to get into this, but I just think that's it is one of the most challenging aspects. And uh, I remember it really grappling with it mentally as we went through the review and I'm still grappling with it. I mean, it's not like I've got any particular say now, but it, it's, it's so obviously it, both of those are responding to really obvious needs. But the, as you pointed out, the irony is that they're responding to obvious needs which are brought up by people who have had experience of the system and are saying things like, for God's sake, it is utterly wrong that the nearest relative is the person who's abused me. And, and you can sort of, and you then, that you do then enter into this slightly challenging world of, well, in that case, should we be going around and sort of in every school, you know, when you're 16, getting you to write your ACD and to nominate someone just in case? And you go, well, that kind of doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of how you, how you grapple with those things. And, and I, I think, I think I, I do know that, that there is a real awareness of the potential for two-tier and how one gets around that. And I think there are definitely ways in which that doesn't necessarily have to happen. But I would say, I think that's gonna to have to an awful lot less to do with the legislation and an awful lot more to do with, I think we've managed to avoid the word culture so far, but mm. you know that has a lot more to do with the, the, the kind of culture changes. And I just think it's, um, yeah, I just think that you, you're, one of the things, the hugely important things I'd like to think that the consultation I hope will bring out is people pointing out the unintended consequences, or at least people are going in with eyes open. I hope so. I mean, one of the things that some of our members have right, really brought up strongly with us, which we will be writing about as well, is um, around therapeutic benefits, mm. um, which is really interesting because it kind of looks quite positive on paper. And um, some of our members have said to us, listen, the unintended consequences of this could be twofold. They could on the, it could on the one hand, um, ironically, increase coercion and on the other, um, increase neglect. Because, you know, if some people are deemed not to get therapeutic benefits, you know, out of detention because of, I don't know, a diagnosis they received or a clinical judgment call, then they'll be out of scope. And so that that that's a really really interesting one because it's a it's 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 not defined in the documents and it means it means many things doesn't it to different people and it just seems really dangerous to me to have a really ill-defined open term like that you know within legislation yeah i think that's you, it is a super interesting question that and it's a super i i have spent far too long now working in law reform um well, not too long, but having gone in thinking you need to be very, very precise the whole time, I think there's some very interesting debates 
to be had about when precision is right and when it's better to have fudge, frankly, but then be aware that it's a fudge, be aware it's an eyes open fudge and be aware that then that means you've got quite a lot of things you then need to do to pick up that it's not, I don't know, the metaphor is going to break down, but it's not being misused. And I think therapeutic benefit, you can see why it needs to be there on one view, but the, the neglect possibility is such an interesting, I mean, a really, I think a non-trivial challenge to it. And mm -hmm. it, it goes along with a bit like the CRPD don't have time to talk about it, but the fact you then have one part of the UN system saying not treating in the face of refusal, incapacitous refusal, could itself be torture. And exactly. that's, you know, that's a, that, that's a perspective, which is a very interesting and very challenging perspective. Yeah, I agree. Um, we're not going into the CRPD? Well, it's only simply, simply honestly, Akiko, because we just don't have time. I would love to have spent time thinking about it with you because I'd just love to hear the perspectives. Um, and I'm sorry, I've, I talked too much for one of these in conversations, but it's partly because you just make me think so much. So my only way of responding is by talking. But Akiko, I, I, we are really, I'm afraid, out of time. But if you do, I, but I want you to have the last word. So if you would like to have a last word about the CRPD, I would be super interested if you did want to say anything from a, either a personal perspective or just to amplify briefly, you know, the, the, the bit you just mentioned about, you know, the, 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 the kind of how one, or the complexities of what you were grappling with. So that really is your, your chance for a relatively, relatively brief last word, but I'd love you to have it. Thank you so much. Um, so. We'll be putting out um, our um, position today and broadly, it's pretty much what I've said to you, which is that we feel that the changes don't go far enough, that some of them will have unintended consequences um, and that um, too many of them are dependent on contexts and funding and political choices, which makes it actually really hard to kind of, you know, pin down what's actually going to happen. I, what, something we haven't spoken about has been um, has been um, institutional racism, you know, within mental health services. And obviously in the light of the sewer reports um, and everything that's happening at the moment, I would like to bring that up. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is something that I think the review and the white paper, you know, were tasked to consider. And I'm not sure, I don't believe that um, it did so adequately. And I think there's a lot more work to be done you know, within um, mental health kind of services, within provision and policy to properly address, um, you know, institutional racism and um, to to make some real change there. And, you know, we will be talking about that as well in our proposal. Yeah, I'm not going to have a comeback, but I can just hear Lade Smith um, on the review team saying this was number one priority for her. Um, and I know you know, we, we could have a very uh, detailed discussion about it, but it is definitely the sewer report is uh, a challenging uh, uh, and challenging in the way in which it then dealt with what the white paper said. But anyway, thank you so much, Akiko. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, and it's just thank you for, for being sort of, sort of open and, and thoughtful in sort of chewing through these things because it's just not straightforward and it's, it's brilliant to hear as it were, live from the front line in terms of thinking these things through. So thank you, Akiko.